Hi, I'm Shreen Batek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to marketing leaders who are changing the industry one decision at a time. Be it figuring out a new roadmap to brand growth, the changing role of the CMO, or the rise of DTC brands, there's a lot to unpack. And so-called direct-to-consumer brands were born online. Their playbooks were about the same. Cut out the middleman, sell online, sell luxury, and affordable prices. But that can only take you so far. In response, many of them are now taking cues from legacy retail, opening up stores, going beyond Facebook advertising, and growing their data capabilities. Joining me this week is Luke Drulez, the CMO of Parachute, a digitally-born homewares brand. Parachute is now on its way to open 20 stores by 2020. I talked to Luke about what that path looks like, how the online brand is now hoping to transition into the new image of an aspirational brand, and much, much more. Hope you enjoy the episode. I think the last time we kind of spoke to folks over at Parachute, um, there was this wonder, wonderful alliterative kind of goal that you set out for yourselves, and it was 20 stores by 2020. Um, and, well, first, tell me tell me how that's going. You're at six stores now. Um, that's is, correct. And growth is coming. Tell me a little bit about sort of how that goal, um, where you are in, in the process of that goal, and what's coming up for you in the coming year. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, just for those at home, the six stores that we have, two in LA, Silver Lake and Venice, one in San Francisco, one in Portland, one in New York and Soho. And, then, and these are permanent stores. These aren't pop-ups. Correct. Yeah. And then we did a, a pop-up in Chicago that will become a full-time store. I think we got a, a lucky break when it came to the lease. So we figured, you know, what better time than during the holidays to test out the market. It's um, on Armitage and the Lincoln Park neighborhood. And it's lovely. It's a little bit larger format, and we're excited for it. Uh, as far as the other stores, um, you know, I think this goal kind of came about in terms of thinking about what are the top key DMAs that we care about as a brand, mm-hmm. and where do we within them? What are the neighborhoods that kind of represent the parachute brand? Mm-hmm. I think increasingly, it's important for us to kind of connect with our tribe and what we'd seen from even the early showrooms that we had in our office is that people had a desire to come and touch and feel the product. And after we had the short-lived stint with the um, Parachute Hotel, that people wanted to see how the brand envisaged a parachute room. You know, I think we see, we have over 3,000 submissions to hashtag my parachute home. And it kind of indicates people increasingly want to share the most intimate spaces in their home. They want to, a source They're okay of ins- letting people into their bedrooms, yeah, into They're their okay bedrooms, their bathrooms. These are usually closed door environments, <laughs> not places that you would, you know, idolize or even fetishize in the same way. And so, I think with the stores, we found that people were coming to us for advice. It wasn't so transactional in nature. You know, you're not stopping by your local CVS to buy toothpaste. You're you have an idea of how you sleep, how you want your room to be perceived. And I think we kind of stand at the intersection of that. And I, I think it's, you know, whether it be millennials, boomers, or Gen X, there is a, a purchase behavior that requires you to touch it, to feel it, to see it. I mean, we sell nearly five shades of gray. And so <laughs> for somebody who wants to get charcoal versus a light gray versus slate. a slate, yeah, you got to make sure that, you know, everything matches and everything looks good. I think there's a couple of really interesting um, trends that you've you've mentioned and flicked at while you were just chatting. I mean, one I think is really interesting is this idea that what used to be these sort of closed spaces um, and also maybe just sort of a regular purchase where you didn't really think much about, okay, what kind of bedding am I going to buy? Or um, you would just walk into a big homewares brand and homeware store and say, I'm going to buy this, pick this up, put it <laughs> into your basket and leave. Yeah. And that's changed. People are 
A, much more open with the place they live in. They want to make sure it looks Instagrammable, make sure it looks good. And they're much more cognizant of what exactly it is they're putting on their beds, what those sheets look like, what those towels look like, what all those things look like. Where has that, that cultural shift is really fascinating to me. How did you kind of tap into that or even notice it first? Um, I think it, it, you know, it's a, we kind of consider our customers to be quality seekers. And I, you know, in this concept of brand as an extension of the self, we noticed that even before we developed the My Parachute Home hashtag, people would share their experience. They'd say, oh, look, uh, I got a handwritten note from the CEO in my box. Or, oh, just got my parachute sheets. Thanks, parachute. And would at hashtag us. And these were just regular people. Yeah. And this way, yeah. We wouldn't, we, there was no impetus. It wasn't as if we sent an email saying, don't forget to talk about us once you open the box. And so, you know, as we started to become a little bit more refined in our social media strategy, you know, naturally it's like, how do we bring user generated content and how do we encourage it to create more of a community? You know, I think in the same way that stores represent a you know, are a part of the fabric of a particular neighborhood or part of that community, the offline community, we wanted to create areas like our blog, like our social media presence that create online communities where people could look for inspiration, where people could see that like real people buy this. This is meant, you know, accessible luxury without saying those words. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of how that came about. Uh, The second thing I think, which is really interesting is also people wanted to go and touch things and be part of see actually see a lot of these products in person. They wanted to see what that actually looked like. They wanted to see how it felt. And in some ways, I think if you asked anybody even two or three years ago, oh, you're a direct-to-consumer brand, I think the overwhelming thing that came with that is, well, you're online. You're yeah. not, this is not even part of kind of the equation. And you've been around for a while. You were founded in 2014. Um, what was that journey of going from, okay, we're an online brand, we, we are direct-to-consumer, and now we are a brand that has stores. Now we're a brand that has all of the things to look forward to that come with those physical presences. What yeah. was that transition like? I think it was always a part of the roadmap. I think, you know, when you look at the statistics, people are so excited about online purchasing and online consumer behavior. But at the end of the day, you know, even for homeware, it's somewhere between 10 and 15% of total commerce. Mm-hmm. So to ignore retail, whether it be through distribution or through your own stores, is to ignore a much broader portion of the population. But would you have said this, or you, uh, the royal you, would you, have ro- said this, <laughs> would you have said this kind of, you know, back in 2015? Or was that kind of a realization that came as you were growing the company? And I think, working? I mean, I, 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 it, it, I love sounding prescient, especially in a recorded atmosphere. <laughs> I think, you know, in a, you know, props go to our CEO, Ariel K, uh, for thinking about this. If you consider the spaces in which you interact with Sheets, it's hotels, it's Airbnbs, it's your own home, it's friends' homes and guest rooms. I think increasingly because the experience is so tactile, retail was always a part of the rollout strategy. I think maybe as we opened first pop-ups and did marketplaces and pop-ins and then moved to stores, we've kind of honed in on what that store experience looks like in terms of square footage, in terms of merchandising, in terms of events, in terms of you know allowing other brands to come into our spaces. Um, and I think that that has changed, certainly. But mm. I, I think retail 
in some regard was always a part of the conversation. But specifically because of the category you're in. Yeah. I think, you know, for other categories, you can get away, I think, without having a physical retail space. That doesn't need touching yeah. and the feeling. Yeah. It's just with homeware, it's, it's such a personal, intimate experience. And, you know, we do try to reduce friction. You know, we got the 60-night trial. We have free shipping returns. You know, we try, you know, we try to use very illustrative language. We try to use close-up images of products. But, there, you know, at a certain extent, there's only so much you can do. And, you know, I don't, I, as much as there is just natural tailwinds that were changed people's purchase behavior mm-hmm. and bring more people online and get people more comfortable with this concept of buying from DNVBs or D2Cs, um, inevitably, some people just like to destination shopping, browsing, walking around a neighborhood mm-hmm. with like a coffee in your hand and just popping into places. It's just those are things that aren't going to necessarily go away. Are they different customers? The people you'd say kind of buy online from you um, versus the people who tend to come into stores? Are they just different demographics, different types that, of people? It's a, it's a great question. I think we, we talk about it internally. I think it's maybe the same customer grouping, like from a demographics perspective, but it's a different customer behavior. I think, you know, you see statistics that are out there where millennials are essentially equally comfortable buying online and buying in stores and are kind of represent kind of an inflection point when it comes to consumer behavior. Um, For those people who need to buy in stores, I think it depends on the type of goods. So it's like, you know, if I buy a Quip toothbrush or if I have a subscription, uh, I go through that purchase flow, I sign up, and it's pretty straightforward. Like, I don't necessarily need to go to a physical retail space. If I, for, I think subscription boxes, that works a little bit easier. I think for certain transactional goods, it's easier, but then... If there is a touching, feeling, fit, sizing need, I think ultimately going into a store for some people just allows them to avoid the process of having to return things. But people tend to buy more. It's likelier that they'll buy something if they're in the store, right? Yeah, yeah. You'll see like higher conversion rate. You'll see slightly higher AOV. Um, They're good customers. And I, I think a lot of it is just removing frictions. It's removing uncertainty with the purchase. Because at the end of the day, like, you can be very adept at buying things online. Um, But yeah, having to print out return labels. I I know people who are serial shoppers and serial returners. And it just seems like it's a lot of work. (laughs) You have to ultimately carve out a portion of your day to be product testing in that regard. And so I think why, you know, if I live in Soho or if I live in Venice or Silver Lake, or if I find myself going to the Pearl District within Portland, it's like, why don't I just stop at a parachute store and see what the buzz is about. So what's the experience like? Somebody walks into a parachute store. They don't know what parachute is. They're, you know, that coffee in the hand person that's just like, (laughs) hey, I'm walking around Soho. Um, What's that experience like? And walk us through a little bit of how you've tried to make that experience kind of feel as parachute as possible. Yeah. um, So I think there's a couple of things. One, we try to work with local brands. So when we open a store we or when we run events, we try to work with local vendors for food, for beverage for DJs, for any kind of that, for brand adjacencies, we try to do pop-ups or pop-ins with brands that we love just to kind of integrate in the community. Um, there's usually a smell. We found like this perfect, and I think the one that is most evocative in my mind and because it's the freshest is our Silver Lake store. They do this incredible blend of like Palo Santo, our candles and incense where it kind of, without feeling like the Hollister cologne experience. <laughs> and I think that's nice. Is this a signature scent? That is- uh, I 
Not yet. I don't think we formally rolled it out everywhere. I, what I, I think as far as the people who work at the stores, really friendly, really knowledgeable. Again, this is not because we have a pretty curated assortment and because of the way the products are merchandised, they're there more to assist you. It's almost like a design service. And so when you come in, it, people try to walk you through the flow of like, how do you sleep at night? How do you, you know, what color is your bedroom? What colors are like, what kind of fabrics do you like? And I think in that regard, the store is set up in that manner. It's very open floor, floor plan. Um, products are generally grouped according to fabrication and then also according to room in the house. Um, I think as compared with more traditional brick and mortar retail, it's not stacks of sheets or towels stacked to the ceiling. Fabric is draped in a way where you can see color and texture a lot more clearly. And we, we make sure that people can see the both yeah the textures and the colors that are available so that if you wanted to you could pull a duvet off of a rail and then move it up to something else and start color matching um, if you want to try on a robe you can if you want to feel the slippers if you want to light a candle you know it's like it's important we don't want to be inaccessible in that regard it's a fine line between being like as transactional as maybe a department store or a big box retailer and being overly austere as if you're walking into this boutique with very subtle music everything is out of reach right. and so we try to strike the balance there and what then about i think the payment sort of the when okay they've gone through this they've figured out something they like they've gone to the register i think yeah. that e-commerce experience and then bringing that ease to the commerce experience the yeah. payment and then the data you're collecting on them so you can follow up um that's become kind of that big battleground a little bit for yeah. people that are doing it well yeah 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 interestingly enough i was uh part of a panel in the nrf yesterday with the ceo of afterpay afterpay is a service that allows you to pay for something that would have been like a hundred dollars and four installments i think what's unique about it is you don't have to pay interest They've actually rolled out Afterpay to all Urban Outfitters locations. So I, I am seeing both financing options rolling out to the brick and mortar experience, which I think is really interesting. And then secondly, um, because it, most retailers don't carry cash, it's very frictionless. So you could use your Apple Pay or you can use a credit card. And yeah, as you as we've gotten more unified customer data, we are getting a better sense of you know what people are buying online and offline. What you'll notice, you know, especially for a brand like ours, is that it is kind of still the minimum viable product. If I want to test a bedding brand, the first thing I'm going to try is sheets. If I want to test a bath brand, the first thing I'm going to try is the towels. So in that regard, there isn't huge variance between online and offline shoppers. I think it's more so when you're in an offline environment, people can get more creative with mixing and matching, maybe as opposed to the online customer, people can skip a little bit ahead to the next purchase where they're like, oh, these towels are great, and then put that on their like, you know, proverbial wish list. You uh, mentioned kind of the unified, as you've become more unified with that kind of customer data and those yeah. customer profiles. Uh, what did that mean? What exactly did you do? And where did you kind of begin and where are you now? Yeah, so we've been fortunate. We've been on Shopify um, for about four years now. And I think they saw... The, they've been reading their tea leaves as well, and they saw that there is this big push towards POS. So we, within Shopify, you do get the benefit of an integrated solution with both POS and um, online. They take care of hardware, software, everything. And the most recent feature that Shopify rolled out that we're in the process of integrating is called Locations, whereby you can have different, um, basically different warehouses that represent your stores, your main warehouse, and therefore different places where inventory can be kept. I think before, I mean, without getting too technical, there is only a singular place within Shopify for inventory. Mm -hmm. And so that presented a problem for a lot of retailers because 
if I have 20 pieces, like 20 <laughs> bathrobes in LA and then 20 in Pennsylvania, it's not as if the person in New York can buy up to 40 bathrobes. They, they're more limited to the 20 Pennsylvania. Right. Um, and so as that has rolled out, it, you know, affects customer accounts. It affects discounting. It affects emails. And so as we, that's what I meant in terms of the process of unification. Um, and then, you know, with your typical email service providers, advertising partners, once that data is in a singular place and we do have a database, we do have data infrastructure, mm-hmm. we're able to slice and dice it better. Has th- it been difficult to kind of build, you know, whether it's that analytics muscle or that data muscle? Because I think, again, one of the big things on companies that were born online or just at least were born somewhat direct to consumer is that all of that first party data and you know yeah. you're, you know your customers and a lot of other kind of brick and mortar retailers, department stores didn't really have that or a lot of brands that sold within those retailers didn't have that either. Was it difficult to build that muscle? Um, I think we're fortunate in that if you work with larger platforms like Shopify, the data is structured in a way where it is easier to analyze. It kind of takes the guesswork out of it. Whereas I imagine if I'd started a company 20 years ago and I'm using this antiquated POS solution, trying to come up with a data schema where I would have to upload data there and then upload it somewhere else. I think we've been able to bypass some of the inefficiencies when it comes to um, BI. And so in that regard, and then when you factor in tools like Facebook, where you could upload audience data and get a general sense, like these are the demographics and the psychographics, like how do these people fit within the Facebook social graph? You can start a little bit more quickly getting towards the truth. I think, you know, it's important to note that with recent developments like Safari, not allowing third-party cookies, with Firefox not allowing third-party cookies, with, you know, Facebook allowing you to opt out, um, there's always going to be an interplay between consumers' need for privacy, which I think if is warranted, and advertisers need to know you, quote-unquote. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, ultimately, understanding of the customer is directional. You're never going to fully know who you're talking to. Yeah. I think it's more just having a sense of who you'd like to talk to and, like, the addressability of speaking to that person, whether it be through sales channels, whether it be for marketing channels, or whether it be through products. You brought up Facebook, and I was going to wait until we got to the later part to kind of chat about <laughs> sort of the intricacies there. But I think you bring up a really interesting point. I think you're seeing, and maybe it's sort of privacy's hot again, or it's hot again for the 20th time kind of thing <laughs> that's happening. But I think we are seeing, we are sort of, as a society, this really interesting inflection point. Yes, consumers sort of demanding their privacy more, and obviously a lot of the platforms under pressure to kind of, you know, change a lot of how they worked. And then kind of online advertising at this point where it's like, should we be knowing every single thing about our customers? <laughs> um, have I th- And I think, again, for brands like yours that were born online, they were probably at the most interesting point of that because I think sort of when it came to online advertising, it felt at a point that every single brand that was advertising to me on Facebook was a DTC brand. Right? Yeah. Every single brand on Instagram still probably is a Every DTC aspect brand. of your consumer life, was, somebody knew <laughs> somebody that you had a knew. problem and was trying to solve right. it. Right. Absolutely. Whether it was sort of lip gloss or whether it was bedding <laughs> or it was the actual mattress itself. Do you think that sort of you've reached at least or at least are starting to reach the limits of where online advertising can take you as kind of a growth plan? Like, is it time to look beyond it and kind of grow beyond just doing online? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, Facebook and Instagram advertising is now the worst kept secret in marketing. Um, It's also really expensive. Yeah, exactly. The most expensive and worst kept secret. (laughs) Yeah, and so in that regard, I I would say two things have happened. One, um, the increase in costs and has affected order economics to a point where it is harder for a new brand to break in. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with, A, 
there's more DTC brands and B, CPGs are becoming a little bit more intuitive in terms of how they are approaching online advertising. So it was only a matter of time when budgets would shift from larger brands from offline to online in a way that costs would go up. Mm-hmm. I think secondly, you'll, you're also seeing the, it's like two ships crossing in the night. The D2C brands are starting to spend more money offline. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, there is kind of, you know, that it, what we started doing about a year and a half ago is bringing more and more of our budget offline. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, yeah, some of it was to, for cost reasons, but I think more pressingly, it was about the brand identity. Uh, I think the brands, heritage brands, brands that you love, legacy brands, you don't just interact with them in, through one medium. Mm-hmm. And so increasingly, I don't want to be known as a Facebook brand. I don't want to be known as a digital disruptor. I want to be seen as a lifestyle brand that people like uh, the wor- uh, people's best kept secret. Like, oh, have you heard of Parachute? And I think the only way to achieve that as a brand is to make sure that you are interacting with people across multiple touch points. Yeah, that's interesting. Sort of you don't want to be known as this like Facebook brand or Instagram brand. Yeah. And I think a lot of especially younger companies run potentially the kind of danger of falling down that rabbit hole, which is yeah. they're only known as that. Oh, have you heard of X? X oh, yeah, I've seen it on Instagram. Yeah, it's right. got a clever name. It's got, it's slightly got millennial card- pink. Yeah, it's got millennial branding. <laughs> A nice balance of serif and sans serif fonts. Maybe some maybe cartoon it. Yeah, cartoons or illustrations. Um, it's just, it, it, I, I think in the same way that banner blindness became a thing, and like increasingly as I navigate the internet, I, I'm no longer seeing the ads. I think you got to be careful as a D2C brand where if you're, you're rolling out too many of the same familiar tropes, like we cut out the middleman for you, or we you know, went to this place and we did this thing. Even though those are, that's all true, though. It's that's true, but it, it feels identity. a little bit, I think we started moving away from like cutting out the middleman and doing that stuff because at a certain, to a certain extent, that isn't necessarily who we want to be seen as moving forward. I think like the quality, the design, the craftsmanship, the attention to detail, you know, is on par with a restoration hardware or is on par with these aspirational brands that people want in their homes. And so rather than, you know, talk about luxury for less or something like that, you know, there's a bigger picture here. There's like we as a brand aspire to be more than that. You brought up a great point about sort of the sea of sameness and kind of (laughs) that, you know, afflicts in it. A lot of it is sort of the branding and the and I think I think the Times actually wrote a great article about a lot of the places that um, digitally native brands or DTC brands, whatever you want to call them, um, start with their branding journeys, often with similar agencies. They're starting with very similar or they're starting with similar points of view or at least um, inspirations of what that's beginning to look like. Are we is this the year we kind of see that? tide finally shift and say, okay, everyone's going to sit there and be like, actually, we need to differentiate, not Yeah, you need to have a point of view. I completely agree. And I, you know, I think the one thing that I think is the most important ultimately is that you have a quality product Mm -hmm. because ultimately it's just marketing otherwise. It's just clever branding. Well, these brands end up becoming marketing companies. Yeah, I think the worst is to see somebody selling a product that is worse for less and then saying we're saving you money. Um, And so that, in that regard, I don't, I don't want to necessarily be considered in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think we are looking to develop and cultivate longer term customer relationships. It's not just about act now and you'll get this thing for $10 off, $20 off, 10% off. So like we've eliminated financial incentives and I think eliminating some, like not necessarily eliminating, but more minimizing our presence on direct response channels has allowed us to cultivate kind of better brand experiences. So is it true that then I think uh, we'd written about your direct mail strategy a little yeah. a little while ago? So that remains a large part of your ad expenditure, which I thought was really interesting. Not maybe as 
large as the article indicated. <laughs> it's it's an important part of our strategy. Okay. That's uh, an interesting strategy. I think yeah, mail I mean, is something I think people don't think about. <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, in this an analogy of two ships crossing in the night, you know, everything old is new again. If I'm going to roll out a different cliche, um, you are seeing more D2C brands advertising on newspapers, radio. Sure. Um, Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I think it was, you know, the direct mail strategy falls within that. Our okay. customer maybe is accustomed in some cases to receiving uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy of um, restoration hardware catalog. So we're not necessarily <laughs> yeah. aspiring towards 600 pages of just goodness. Oh, just um, that like yellow pages phone y- book. Yeah, goodness. but we are, I do think that it is, what's nice about direct mail is it's tactile. It's a way to envisage the brand if you aren't in a place where you can visit a store. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, you mentioned kind of Shopify and sort of locations and, you know, the 20 bathrooms here, 20 bathrooms there, which I think is a fascinating thing because I think the other big or the next big battleground seems to be kind of nailing that logistics, nailing the shipping, nailing the delivery, two day delivery, one day delivery. Um, and that's where I think a lot of brands are now finding like that's where you got to compete and do really, really well because you could have the best Instagram channels, you could yeah. have the best websites. But if you're not delivering and customer expectations are shaped now by Amazon, they're shaped by all of these giant marketplaces around it. Um, talk to me a little bit about that road to logistics, you know, heaven, making it sort of perfect, because I think that's the sort of less sexy, but sort of most important part of creating a brand now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, operational excellence is table stakes. And, you know, I, I think Amazon and increasingly other brands are, you know, even Walmart has moved towards two-day shipping for the holidays. It's bringing everyone towards parity. And so for us, it's finding the right partners. Um, we have a great 3PL partner. We have good order management systems. And we increasingly are making sure that we're investing in roles when it comes to stores, like making sure the appropriate amount of stock is allocated there, making sure that we have the right planning tools, making sure that we're sharing the right kind of information with our planning team so that when they're planning buys both nationally and locally, that they have enough information to you know, make as accurate of projections as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're keenly aware of it because... To some degree, scarcity is a good thing. Like to go on a website and say, oh, this thing's sold out. It must be great. It must be a bestseller. Uh, On the flip side. But it happens too many times. Yeah. If there's 22,000 person wait list, it's no longer (laughs) a press story. It's a problem. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that is kind of, we're keenly aware of it. And there is a healthy competition between increasing the assortment, increasing operational complexity, but also making sure that you do what you're known for great. Mm-hmm. But you're because you're not going to do 20 again, 20,000 types of product. Yeah. Yeah, I mean cuz ulti- if you too quickly expand your assortment, you could very quickly become the brand that you were trying to supplant. Right. And that's the the biggest irony in all of this mm-hmm. is increasing the amount of SKU means that you have to showcase it in stores, which means that you might have to increase the square foot like the, the footprint, which means that you may no longer be able to be in that special neighborhood that you chose. And then very quickly you find yourself at a mall, very quickly you find yourself with a 3,000 page catalog, with a website that feels like an infinite slope. scroll. Yeah, so I think it, you know the easiest way to prevent operational complexity is to not add complexity. complexity. And I, I think the, the other thing that we're focused on beyond that is a simple operational excellence. Yeah. We, we haven't yet gone to a place where you can ship to store, ship from store. You know, I, I'm blanking on the 
like BOPIS, like oh, those different yeah. acronyms for like how you can interact with the store. Buy online, pick up. In yeah, pick store, up in store. I think is what it is. Yes, Bopis. exactly. I didn't know they actually said that in real I've, life. I've heard the acronyms <laughs> thrown out there. It was only a matter of time. Um, but I, I think that is the end, the end goal. And then ultimately just making sure that what we do, we do really well. Mm-hmm. Because increasingly, like as a marketer, when I look at my metrics, ye- a lot of what happens is ne- not necessarily within my realm of control. Like re- return on ad spend, for example, you know, it looks at people who buy or LTV looks at not only your first transaction, but future transactions. But within a transaction, it's not simply I see an ad, I go to a website. It's I see an ad, I go to a website, I talk to customer service, they help me, I buy something, I then get a series of emails that tell me when I'm going to get it and then get shipped to my house. I then unbox it, I then put it on my bed, I need a care for it, I need, you know, it's like there's so many steps that goes into the customer journey. And for me, it's I know I need to be keenly aware of it. I think the role of the marketer has changed where if you are responsible for positioning and brand messaging within that is the, you know, the customer experience, like how do people perceive you, um, online and offline and like do those reconcile a, and is that, is it replicable? Is the experience that you get the same as the experience that I get? So on that, would you, what's your point of view and kind of then, you know, giving up that experience in some way to a marketplace saying we will sell on, Amazon, we will sell on wherever that is. I think, you know, if you can find the right distribution partner and without compromising your point of view, I don't think it's prescriptive. Like different brands have different goals. And therefore, you know, Amazon is a place where what 50 plus percent of people are starting their shopping journeys. It's the biggest shopping engine in the world. So it's an, I, I can't discount that. I think for us to sell on Amazon. So at this point would just maybe be a little premature. I think you need to, I guess the way I like to think about it is you need brand equity to give away brand equity. And we're still in the, the business of building brand awareness and brand equity. Um, I think if we were to sign any kind of distribution deals or any kind of third-party marketplace deals, we just need to make sure that it fits within the brand and we need to make sure that it fits within our longer-term goals. So it's not saying we will never sell it. I'm not going to go on the record as saying we'll never sell on Amazon. It's just that you know, in the first five years of business, it wasn't a priority because it was more important to cultivate customer experiences and you really harness our first-party data to grow our base of customers. And now you have the road to 2020. The road 20 by 2020. <laughs> 20 stores. Yeah, mark your calendars. <laughs> We're ready. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Give us a shout out on iTunes or, of course, tweet at me. I'm at Shireen Patek. You can also send me an email at Shireen at Digiday.com. And as a thank you, I'll read my favorite reviews at the end of next week's show. I can't wait to hear what you really think. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.